0: This is Chip in Durham,
1: Erica in Edmonton, and Shannon in Durham.
0: And welcome to the Audio Guide to Babylon 5, Episode 10, Walker. Hi, and welcome to the 10th episode of the Audio Guide to Babylon 5. This is your bi-weekly journey through the Babylon 5 universe. We're re-watching the show episode by episode, Two weeks by two weeks, because we have lives and we can't do it as often as we would like to. But we are so glad that you are with us again for Death Walker. Hello, Erica. Hello. Hello, Shannon. Hello. So... How are we feeling about Babylon 5? Do we want to keep on with this thing, or are we done with the series? Yes. <laughs> shush, you shush. Okay. We got some great feedback with uh, our guest appearance from Stephen Schapansky last time. Uh, thanks, everybody, who uh, let us know. It was adorable to have somebody who's never seen <laughs> Babylon 5 before on the show, and I think, I think people really responded to that.
2: Mm-hmm. I think it's nice to sort of see that wide-eyed enthusiasm, um, sort of firsthand, so to speak, um, and get that get that perspective because it's it's neat.
0: So uh, we are almost halfway through the first season of Babylon Five, and uh, things are really starting to ramp up. Uh, and what we have with us today is the episode Deathwalker and what we need to know about babylon 5 here is your uh, paragraph summary of everything that's happened before that's relevant to this episode and nothing that's not so think of this as dehydrated b5 the babylon 5 space station is an interstellar united nations attempting to build the peace commander jeffrey sinclair is the earth alliance ambassador and military governor caught between his people in the minbari formerly at war the centaurian narn formerly at war the mysterious Vorlons, and a loose league of non-aligned worlds. Nobody really trusts anyone. And that is almost literally everything you need to know about Babylon 5 before going into this episode, which proceeds as follows. A war criminal from the Dilgar War, War Master Jadur, a.k.a. Death Walker, arrives on Babylon 5 carrying an experimental drug that halts the aging process and protects against disease. She's offering the drug to the Earth Alliance, her former enemies, which really complicates the League of Non-Aligned Worlds' desire to put her on trial and Narn ambassadorial aide Natoth's desire to outright kill her. Sinclair wheels and deals and gets the League to accept putting off the trial in exchange for Earth sharing the drug, at which Jadur reveals that the main ingredient can only come from killing others. She triumphantly leaves the station only to be blown to bits by the Vorlons who admonish everyone that... You are not ready for immortality. While all of this has been going on, Vorlon Ambassador Kosh has also been busy hiring the most irritating cyborg stenographer in future history to scan Earth telepath Talia Winter's mind.
1: Reflection. Surprise. Terror.
0: For the future. And that was Deathwalker. I think it's a little bit better on screen than in the paragraph reading, but... That would be a really short podcast if we just depended on that. So, Death Walker, uh, first off, uh, let's get some uh, initial reactions from Shannon and Erica.
1: A strong episode, a very thought provoking episode. It tore into a lot of moral issues, a lot of complications without any fear, and uh, ripped them apart, dumped everything into a basket, shook it up, and threw it back out on the floor to see what happened. There was a lot to chew on in here, especially for an episode that, by and large, um, is not quite in the major arc of the show. It's essentially a, a one-off that can be watched on its own. But, man, does it try to push every single button it can find.
0: Mm-hmm. What about you, Erica?
1: You know, this is one that I had kind of forgotten
2: when we I saw it was coming up. I said, oh, Deathwalker. I turned to Steven and said, I don't remember at all what this is about. And once it got rolling, it, it kind of came back to me a little bit. Um, so it's it's one that never gripped me emotionally because those are the episodes I remember, the ones that kind of get under my skin. Mm-hmm. However, re-watching it and looking at it, I, I completely agree with Shannon that there's a lot to chew on here, the, the, the sort of moral issue that's going on. And, and I think... The one part of it that really did sing for me is just the fact that it's her reveal at the end. So I'm watching this whole thing and enjoying it from a cerebral standpoint. But then when I find out that the secret ingredient to make the cocktail work happens to be uh, something that needs to be derived from living people, that, that was just where it really hit home for me and I, and I enjoyed it. It's just too bad I hadn't remembered it from the previous time that I saw it. I, so overall, this is, this is a good one, but it's, it isn't one of the ones that I'm going to put up on a pedestal. At some point,
0: yeah. Is it because it is it because of the character thing, or because of the fact that it really, without spoiling, uh, because we are phobic about spoilers before we go through the jump gate? There's not a lot in here that is of essentialness in the whole five year arc. Isn't that fair to say?
2: I, I, I agree. And I think that that's part of why it didn't stick in my memory. But I think the the character thing actually is, is that we don't get a lot of those nifty little character moments that I just love so much. There are a few in here, but I feel like they're sprinkled in pretty thin on the ground. I think this is more about sort of a political intrigue and moral quandary, which are things that I definitely enjoy watching, but maybe don't hit me in the heart quite as much as watching these characters that I adore come together and move apart and, and develop in front of our eyes.
0: yeah and That's Shannon, fair. you mentioned something before we started recording about uh, one of the characteristics of this episode that you have admired.:
1: One of the thing, two things uh, one, I, I agree with what Erica said. Um, I noted that for the first time in a long time, we're actually seeing most of the recurring characters um, that especially characters we haven't seen in a while. We haven't seen Talia Winters in a while. Uh, we haven't seen Lanier in a while. Um, and they ha- they get to step up and have um, bigger roles in this particular episode. Um, but something else I really liked was that JMS was unafraid to make his villain completely irredeemable. Um, I think a lot of writers would have been tempted to try and throw just a touch of sympathy in towards Death Walker. You know, her, her entire planet is gone or something like that he doesn't hold back. She is completely and utterly a bitch. (laughs) Um, (laughs) She has developed this serum precisely to make it a catch-22, to make people, the rest of these races, destroy themselves over it. And that is something I don't think every series or every character um, or every writer would do. So that uh, really struck me. The other thing that struck me was um, this particular episode, there's a pretty much a smorgasbord of strong female roles and uh, female roles getting some strong moments. Death Walker could have been a male, and it would not have changed anything about how the story for that character played out.
0: Ambassador Uh, Calica could have been a male character.
1: Yeah, the ambassador, Mm -hmm. the voice for the non-aligned worlds could have been a male character, would not have changed anything. And I especially liked, I had forgotten that it was Natoff. That recognized Death Walker and attacked her with, the with just amazing ferocity. That the fact that you know that could have been a male character selected to recognize her and attack, but no, JMS put a a woman in that role too. He he does this once in a while, just certain episodes. And well, not just him. There's been other writers. Um, mm-hmm.
0: And this one was not written this. by him. This was written by Larry DiTilio.
1: Okay, so so not just JMS, but other writers. Uh, are encouraged to fully use female characters. Just, um, it's like flipping a switch. This character's male, this character's female, and it's still a very compelling character. Yeah. So that was something I really liked.
2: You can't see me, but I am beaming and nodding my head up and down. I am just, (laughs) (laughs) I'm enjoying everything you're saying. Because that is something I noticed, too. I Like I said, I'd forgotten this episode, so I was sort of rediscovering it as I watched it. Mm -hmm. And when Deathwalker appeared and suddenly, you know, Natoth runs at her, I was like, oh, yeah, this is Natoth being super badass and awesome. And then she gets there and I was like, oh, that's right. Deathwalker is a woman. And... Like you said, I, there is no big deal made of it. There is absolutely nothing about her femininity that plays into her character. Nobody mentions that. Not even any of the Earth characters, who maybe could be expected to be a little bit more backward when it when it comes to that sort of thing. Nobody says anything about that. She doesn't have a maternal motive. She doesn't. She's not trying to come up with some, you know, lost love she's trying to avenge. It's just she is a character who is doing things because that is what she wants to do. And I just love that she doesn't have any of. Those hokey motivations that are often saddled onto onto the female villains in, in so many shows. It's just I just stand up and cheer moment for me for sure.
0: Yeah, there's another um, possibly feminist angle that we could take on this episode that I, I just thought about while you all were talking. Whether um, this is art by accident or what, you know, um, Dylan is not in this episode. Whether it's written mm-hmm. and we don't know if. Lanier's piece was rewritten that it would have been initially uh, DeLynn, um doing her thing on the B-5 Advisory Council. But at the critical moment, you have Ambassador Kalika, played by Star Trek's Robin Curtis, mind you, um, being mm-hmm. the voice of the non-aligned worlds. And she is being completely shut down by a panel full of guys. It's <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. true.
0: Sinclair, uh, Sinclair is ineffectual. Londo, no. Jakar, no. Linear, no. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, I'm, I'm kind of glad if it was an accident, I'm kind of glad it turned out th- that way because that was a neat... A chance for Lanier, to, uh, for us to get to know him a little bit better. First, there's when Sinclair approaches him to try and make contact with Dillon or his government, and he's just, oh my god, how green was he as he started joyously reciting the history of that he knew oh, and sharing I he was so it. cute! Uh, <laughs> doing that, and then in the council chamber, he obviously disagrees with what he's got to do, but he's got to do it, just as Sinclair has to do what EarthGov tells him what to do. But you see it so much more on Lanier's face. I mean, you see, it on Sinclair, you see Sinclair's conflict too, but Lanier's conflict is clearly so much bigger for him. Uh, this is probably the first time he is having to go against what he would have believed to be right, uh, because he's been told to follow orders, um, and, and he, he does also, it.
0: And he does it. You know, with he, he does it straightforwardly. He doesn't go through a lot of histrionics. But he's clearly unhappy. He's clearly pissed,
1: and, and he he's clearly hold
0: embarrassed. Back. And ashamed yes. when everybody else clears out of the room.
1: He tells Sinclair exactly what he thinks. Yes, so yep. I couldn't I like agree it. more. I was very
2: happy to see a little bit more. See, this is that was actually one of the character moments that I was talking about. That this episode does have that I like. The first of all, the the history lesson he gives to Sinclair, and then his his appearance on the council. I just I I really like seeing. He has had very very little screen time, so I, I liked seeing a little bit more from him. So whether it was on purpose or not, um, hooray! that it happened.
0: Yeah. Um let's pull back from character just for a moment because I'd like to share some backstory amplification uh that JMS provided online back in the day. Um because I don't think this ever comes out adequately in the story itself, but it's if it had, it would have added a little bit of texture and world building to the episode. Um, the Dilgar War happened about 20 years before the Earth-Mimbari War, and it was one of the first conflicts that the Earth Alliance got into. And JMS uh, said online that we, the Earth Alliance, mainly entered it to try to make a rep for ourselves and then got more morally involved when we saw what was going on. So this is this is the Earth Alliance sort of uh, new on the stage and trying to be big and bad and American about, uh, about interne- interstellar politics. But, but we once we saw what was really got, going on, we got more involved in supporting the league of non aligned worlds um j m s says that and the minbari war are the only real major conflicts earth has been involved with, and earth was not directly at risk in the dilgar war so though if they if the dilgar hadn't been stopped, that might have changed in, eventually um so I kind of like that little bit of world building um about um sort of Where Earth stands in the universe, the sort of upstarts now, powerful upstarts, but still upstarts. Um, Did any of that come across to you in watching this if you hadn't happened to read that quote that's archived on The Lurker's Guide to Babylon 5?
2: It kind of did. I mean, I I wouldn't have necessarily known that was the only uh, action that that Earth had been involved in, but I definitely sort of got the idea that it was early on in, in Earth's interstellar relationships with the the universe. So it it I thought that even without knowing that it played pretty well. I like knowing it it gives it a little extra flavor, but I I got enough out of it to recognize that there was some sort of big conflict that involved the whole world and it was it was earth starting out to take the baby steps into the universe of conflict that's out there.
1: Yeah, I think it knowing that helps explain a little bit more sort of why the League of Non-Aligned Worlds was particularly fixated on Earth um, and counting on Earth to support them and be um, a voice along with them in this issue. Without that knowledge, it, just, it seems like the League of Non-Aligned Worlds was really pinning themselves on Seclair awfully quickly, you know, quick to confront him uh, when they were trying to take Deathwalker off the station. Very quick to show they weren't going to bluff that, you know, you, you're you going to have to kill every single one of us uh, if you were going to let her let her go. So knowing that, I think, helps support that a little bit better.
0: Yeah. Uh, and listeners, if you haven't, if you if you've been following our uh, viewing order, that means that you've skipped the prequel movie in the beginning. And there's a brief line in there. This isn't a big spoiler. There's a brief line in there that uh, where a character says, we took care of the Dilgar dot, dot, dot. And that gives you sort of an idea of the Earth Alliance's, you know, after the Dilgar War, the Earth Alliance was swaggering a fair bit. <laughs>
2: Yeah. Actually, you know, you mentioned how that's a little bit of world building. That was one of the things that I liked about this story is that we got some world building without without big, crazy info dumps, um, which we occasionally get. Well, maybe not big, crazy ones, but that's one of the things that occasionally bothers me. And I liked that, for example, the concept of Chonkar, the Narn uh, revenge oath is something that just it, it builds out the Narn even just a little bit more. We've, we've been getting more and more about them throughout the, the beginning of the series here. But that's that's one more thing that sort of very well fits into what we know about the Narn. But this, it's one more piece of the puzzle, and it's I like that it's not overly explained. It's just mentioned. I've you know taken Chon Carr, that's why I'm doing this, and then a, a couple lines down the road, she's then you get a little bit more explanation of the fact that it's a a blood oath and and why she has 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 given it. But uh, I I appreciate the the skillfulness with which that was delivered. Good world Yeah, I,
1: yeah I think this episode in particular. Did a better job than most in handling those expedition dumps. Um, as you said, the Natof just by generally natural conversation, we get the idea of the Blood Oath and her need for revenge. Um, we get a lot of Death Walker's backstory in a conversation between Dr. Franklin and Sinclair, where, you know, it's, it's a natural conversation, but it's giving us the information we need. And, you know, Lanier's filling in of the Mimbari side. It's all woven in better than usual or better than we've seen sometimes.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we even to- get a
1: little bit of it from Garibaldi
2: when he's, you know, kind of mm-hmm. e- almost yelling at Sinclair about all the terrible things she did. I mean, that was one of those the scenes that could have crossed the line and, and gone over into the info dub territory, but I think he, he sold it pretty well because he was really upset and it worked for Right.
0: Yeah. And uh, to Stephen's point from uh, our previous episode, this is the sort of episode of television that would not be made today. Um This sort of self-contained mm-hmm. world building episode. And I like this all the more for it. You know, uh, Stephen's point was yep. that these days we'd have a 13-episode run rather than a 22-episode run, and we'd have Nothing but a plot, nothing but arc, uh, and I think this kind of episode really does put the arc into better context. I think it makes for a better show.
2: Agreed. I completely agree. Yeah, and now I'm I'm thinking about yes, I kind of forgot about this episode, but the the fact that I. Forgot sort of the the plot and exactly what happens doesn't mean that I forgot the that it didn't imbue something into the story and that it didn't give me a flavor of what the world was like and as I said I remembered it more as as the show went on and I I think if I had lost this and not seen this episode I really would have lost something important about the world and the way that it works so I'm, I'm very glad it's there
0: yeah. Um, also, uh, one last uh, quick side note and then we'll move on. Um, this is another piece of JMS backstory uh, that helps color things but isn't actually properly expressed in the episode itself. The Wind Swords is the mimbari warrior clan that was involved in the gathering. They, huh. The mimbari who was in the changeling net who was uh, responsible for trying to assassinate Kosh, etc. and so on. He was a Wind Sword.
1: Huh. Okay then.
0: Note that. Nice. So, um, so anyway that that's the that's the stuff that wasn't said in the episode but is out there that we that we hand out to you as a little apéritif, I guess. <laughs> um, so one of the things that struck me about this episode is that, and Sinclair says this right off the bat: Deathwalker is an issue that is bigger than Babylon Five. It just happens to be Babylon 5 where she landed and it's sort of a cauldron or crucible or whatever where all of the different uh, governments have a representative. But the decisions are something, the decisions that have to be made really aren't Sinclair's to make until he takes advantage of the fact that the League of Non-Aligned Worlds blocks him in the corridor and says, You'll have to kill us before we allow you to go any further. He says, Okay, noted. We're going to do something different now. Thank you for this opportunity. Uh, Two questions. He tried to box in the Earth Alliance. Um, If the Vorlons hadn't shown up to blow Deathwalker up and if the anti-agapic drug hadn't required uh, material from living beings, if all of that stuff hadn't been part of the picture, would it have worked? Would Sinclair have won the day?
1: I don't know that he would have. I mean, certainly he was trying his best for the League of Non-Aligned Worlds. I, I don't know once once Death Walker got to Earth and once these other representatives showed up. I don't know if the people in charge back home would have would have honored it. I, maybe, I think mm-hmm. maybe they would have. Maybe they wouldn't.
2: Yeah, I I found it interesting actually watching this. We've seen Sinclair kind of do a little bit of a sidestep to try to get around bad Earth policies as he sees them in the past. And, and this time, I thought it was very interesting that in the first part of the episode, he really didn't have an opportunity to do that. And the only opportunity he gets is when they confront him. So I I think... If he were going to play something fast and loose and sidestep it, it would have had to have come before that point of sending her home. So I, I really think that that it was only because of the League's intervention there uh, that that he was able to, to do what he knew was right. I think we would have just seen him being a dutiful soldier and following orders, and mm-hmm. he, he wouldn't have gotten his moral way in the end if it wasn't for them.
0: But when she did land on Earth, would he have, you know, would he have successfully shamed Earth into giving up the, giving up the drugs and allowing the. Yeah,
2: that's, I, I like that it was left open. I think that this is another, another example of Babylon 5 doing that, that, you know, neat thing so well where they don't tie things up in, in nice little bows. And I, I, it's hard to say because I think it's one of those things that it would have very much depended on what came next. And of course, we, the three of us, know what comes next as far as interstellar politics, but at this point it it completely depends on Earth's involvement in the rest of the universe. So if Earth stays on really good terms with everybody else, then yes, I think they would have to have been shamed into that. And if Earth, you know, the the, the nasty people kind of get in charge and, and are trying to close Earth off from the rest of the world, then I think in that case, it it probably wouldn't have mattered <laughs> what Sinclair did at this point because they would be able to do uh, whatever they wanted. Right. Well, but of course... Yeah, we have the, we
1: have the background of the Home Guard problem, too. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've got, you know, this alien being brought to Earth for some super secret project, um, and that's probably all that Home Guard would or any other general population would know for the longest time. And then on top of that, we've got other aliens come to watch that and I, general public opinion probably might drive things against the Sinclair Compromise.
0: Yeah. So. But, of course, the point was moot because yes. Vorlons. Yep. Because Vorlons. <laughs>
1: because, or as
2: I wrote in my notes, deus ex Vorlon. <laughs>
0: mm-hmm. <laughs> or Vorlon ex machina.
1: The, yes. The hour e- of- <laughs> either way, I like them both.
0: Yeah. Yes. So
1: the hour of think- scampering was passed. It was time for the hour of slaying. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. What do we think about the Vorlons now? And this is us putting ourselves in the mindset of the new viewer or just what we know of Babylon 5 up to this point. What about these Vorlons? They've been <laughs> mysterious. They've been committed to um, secrecy and revenge over the assassination attempt on Kosh, et cetera, and so on. But this time...
2: I don't know if I'm remembering this exactly right because I didn't note it down. But when it was done and and Steve and I were kind of talking about the episode and I was clarifying the whole Talia side story. And he was just like, wow, he's a dick. (laughs) So,
1: yeah. So there you have
2: the newcomer's opinion.
1: Yeah. um, The the Vorlons basically just spanked the rest of the worlds, and we don't know why. That's, Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah.
0: If, 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 If Kosh had an exposed hand, he would have been waggling a finger. Mm-hmm. You're not ready for immortality. Uh-uh-uh. Yep. Instead,
2: yeah. all we get from him are r- ridiculous things like, you know, what what is need compared to the path?
0: Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Let's talk about Talia, Kash, and Abbott. <laughs> I give you three choices. Interesting, annoying, or padding.
2: I say interesting. I actually love that bit. And yes, I agree that Abbott is, is pretty annoying, but I think that was on purpose. I think that was a choice because, you know, he, Is supposed to be drawing out these emotions from Talia, we think, uh, as we find out in the end. And so, you know, annoyance and, and being in your face that that brings emotions to the surface even a little bit more. So I feel like that was a deliberate thing. And just the fact that they are trading these ridiculous lines, a herring is just a herring, but a good cigar is a Cuban. Oh, I, I love that kind of stuff it just it amused me to no end just as it was annoying the crap out of talia which and that in itself was also amusing to me watching her you know little miss straight laced always wearing her psycho gloves and all that getting a little bit just rubbed the wrong way by all of this i i found it very entertaining. And then when we get to the end and we find out that, that Abbott is a quote-unquote vicar for VCR, <laughs> so mm-hmm. a little bit of ancient technology there, which seems ancient already at this point, which is funny because it was not at the time. Right. The, uh, the the whole mysterious, oh my gosh, what did they do idea behind it made it even more exciting for me. So this is one of those those cases where I like the B plot just as much as I like the A plot.
0: Shannon? It
1: was... Not annoying so much as sort of baffling uh, as it was going on uh, that, you know, OK, is there a, is there a point to this? There's got to be a point to this. This is this is JMS. He, he, he doesn't do things for no reason. So what's the point? And then we get to the end and find out that uh, while we don't know why, Kosh was essentially investigating or examining Talia. Um, and is up to something and you know we get the feeling especially with the the killing of death walker without explaining it um that possibly his intentions are no good but overall it was it was a nice counterbalance given how heavy the rest of the episode was
0: yes my personal leaning is that larry Tilio is a sadist and jms is a savior now somebody may <laughs> contradict re- contradict me f- by having read the actual script books that are out there. But my suspicion is that DeTilio had five or six pages of nonsense dialogue and JMS sort of swooped in and mercy killed most of them. Because if there had been any more lines of di- any more lines of nonsense dialogue, I would have gone kind of nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Aww. I and maybe I maybe I'll chalk that up to the performance of the actor playing Abbott, but it, it 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 did great on me a little bit. I I do have a little bit of a lack of patience for scenes that don't appear to make sense until the very end. As uh, my recent watch of a, a certain Doctor Who episode uh, comes to mind, um, <laughs> I had the same issue watching uh, the episode Listen that recently aired as we record this. But yeah, it it. It was just scene after scene of babbling, which really annoyed me up until the end. When it sort of it, when we sort of got a little bit more context, once I had the context, I was okay with it.
2: Whereas I just enjoyed the. The silliness, which is a strange thing for me to say, because I generally don't enjoy the just really wackadoo kind of stuff. But I think, and maybe this is a little bit of me having seen it from the middle and then jumped back to the beginning. So I already kind of had a, a picture of, of what I thought of Kosh in my head. So it was just neat going back and seeing earlier mm-hmm. Kosh. So I, I enjoyed that. I yeah. I don't know. I I'd suspect that I probably would still have enjoyed it anyway just because lines like the willows must scuttle carefully that appeals to me i can't i can't say why i just like it
1: (laughs) and i I like that at the very beginning again and we've seen jms do this abbott pretty much says flat out he talks about clearing the processor or or whatever the line is he he basically Mm -hmm. refers it to himself or his brain as a processor and well as it ends up yeah that's what he is so, you know, the, the for the little mini foreshadowing uh was kind of neat.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we've talked about Talia, Kosh, and Abbott. Let's talk about Natoth and Jakar real quick. Uh what do we learn about the Narn in this episode? And do they especially Jakar come off as conniving or principled? Because there's some there's some nice texture to um Andreas Katsulas and Jakar in this episode.
2: I don't think the two are mutually exclusive. I True think, enough. I, th- I think he does both very well. Um, I, I love the fact that we get that scene with Jakar and Natoth where after he takes her away from Commander Sh- Sinclair and he's he's all chastised and I'm so sorry about my attaché. I don't know what made her do that. And then they get back and he admits that he's proud of her and he understands this uh, this Car and he <laughs> admits he has quite a few of them. But then he gets to the fact that, oh, this is complicated for us because we were actually going to do some somewhat shady dealings and try to swoop in and, and take this the serum away. He is absolutely
0: happy to do a deal with her because it would benefit the Narn, but he doesn't hesitate to call, call her a butcher in the same breath.
2: Yes. Yeah, he Mm -hmm. clearly he clearly doesn't think very much of her. But if it's going to advance his own personal cause, that's that's no way. However, then we get to the scene where he actually speaks to her and she says she wants, you know, the head of the animal that attacked her within the hour. And that makes him pause. So Mm -hmm. we really see a lot of different sides to Jakar here. And I, I like that.
1: Yeah, there's the the throwback to um, how they were characterized early on. Narns will sell to anyone who has the credits. You know, Narns will deal with anybody if it's to their uh, advantage. And Jakar gets that sort of thrown in his face because Deathwalker says, you know, the price is, you know, the is the life of your, your aid. And Jakar's not willing to do that. So he he steps back and he thinks and he tries to find another way in the council scene by putting a condition on his vote and... Um, he sticks to the plan. You know the the uh lot, the league protests uh, the trial happening on Narn and and Jakar is like, okay, you had your chance, and I vote no. So it's it's really interesting to, to see that the Narn continue to constantly work for more than one purpose, and that there's always something to try and better their position in the in the universe um, on top of uh, whatever immediate gratification that they might get.
0: Hmm. And at the end, when Deathwalker's Minbari flyer blows into a billion pieces, Natath is happy. Jakar's not too upset either. No. Londo's not upset either. There's almost nobody who's really disappointed.
2: That's true. You know, I didn't even catch that really on watching it but i i think that that's kind yeah, of that, interesting that, i think i think no matter what she was offering and i don't think at that point i really don't think anybody beyond commander sinclair really knew what the the secret to that that was
0: did well they? the the league of non-aligned worlds did and oh, and, they did, okay. and, and the well, narn they, would have
1: i don't not yet though
0: yeah yeah i they, think she, he made uh, uh,
1: death walker only spilled that um that the serum required uh qu- it required lives to create uh, yeah, Tim yeah, sinclair yeah. So everyone else Justice just knew was that there leaving. was this serum, right? So yeah. I feel
2: like they probably all had, regardless of the fact that yes, people were going to be able to be immortal practically and live forever. I think they were and all harboring very, yeah, right, personal grudges and just feelings of this. She really needs to be punished. So I, I, I would guess that there was almost a sense of relief from a lot of from a lot of those those
0: places yes. to just be it like, was- well.
2: A, she got her justice, and B, I didn't have to be the
0: one to make the decision. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So everybody's happy, and yet we still think the Vorlons are dicks.
1: (laughs) Yep. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Okay. (laughs) I uh, didn't
2: personally. I didn't personally think the Vorlons were dicks. I I I was just sort of like I still don't at this point I still don't understand them or where they're coming from or what they what they are doing. So I'm I'm willing to wait and see.
1: That's the part that made them dicks about it. They didn't explain. Mm-hmm. They they didn't they didn't do anything other than to be very high and mighty, pat you on the head, you little two year olds. You're not ready for immortality. That's the part that made them dicks. Not the part that they took the decision out of everyone's hands and killed Deathwalker.
0: Mental mm-hmm. note: Don't automatically choose the clean tag on the podcast when I upload.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry.
0: We we're, we're all doing it. Um, yeah, so well, you know, uh, it's
2: not quite explicit. Just leave it empty.
0: Exactly, exactly. Okay, uh so before we go into uh spoiler space, it's time for some perfunctory check-ins. Okay, check-in number 1, Sinclair. How are we doing, Erica?
2: Oh, good grief. He <laughs> he, he has some some fine moments. I mean, most of this is actually fine, but Intense Sinclair is my least favorite Sinclair. So when he's talking, you know, Garibaldi goes off on him and explains all these terrible things that Jadur has done in the past. And he just turns and gets all intense and wide-eyed Sinclair and says, I know, damn it. And I was just, uh, I I literally rolled my eyes so far that it brought my head back on my neck. I just, (laughs) that speech was terrible i did not like it at all however we get him later at the end um when he comes up with his compromise not at the very end and mm-hmm. and he he looks it's a good compromise i really like it and he he gets he looks a little smug and you know what i'm okay with that smug sinclair i'm all right with it's intense sinclair that i have a problem with so most of the time he was fine but that one scene was just so far over the top that it it, it stood out
0: a lot shannon <laughs>
1: I generally liked his performance more more than not. It helped that he was bouncing off a lot of other characters. I, I always think he tends the, the character tends to do better, um, Michael O'Hare tends to do better when um, he is in a lively exchange with somebody. So, you know, he he's exchanging looks or quips with uh, Garibaldi at times when he's talking with Ivanova and and putting it the responsibility on her shoulders to keep all of these ships that have just arrived in line until he can come up with a compromise, leading and working the room in the um, council chambers. Moments like that, I think he does a pretty good job of it. And I certainly, more often than not in the episode, felt for his position, for him being caught between the orders from Earth that he has to try and obey versus doing what he knows is right.
2: You know, I I agree. Actually, there was one scene I had forgotten that I I quite enjoyed, and that was towards the end when he was just sitting down and, and chatting with Garibaldi, kind of after things mm-hmm. had happened. Because he does he th- this character does have a good deal of warmth, and I think that my, Michael O'Hare is able to sell that the warmth. He still feels stiff to me even when he's being warm, but there's a genuine warmth there that I that I enjoy. It's just that he's he's so busy being a hero most of the time that I don't get to see it as much as I would like.
0: I just like that little moment uh, between him and Londo early on when Londo's pressing him about death Walker and he just walks into the elevator and says, you shouldn't, you shouldn't listen to rumors and the door closes on him. And he is, his just, his face is just a mask, you know? And I, <laughs> I think that's great. It's just, it, it, it's the, it's the shutdown, the military shutdown that it's totally believable.
2: That's true. Well, speaking of, of, of Londo, actually one of my favorite moments of the entire episode. I know. Was which is, when, I know what's coming. <laughs> Londo's saying, "Oh, I, you know, shouldn't listen to rumors." And Sinclair says, "Oh, you know, we wanted to handle it quietly." And Lando just says, "Great job." <laughs> mm-hmm, yes, that was
1: yeah, that was awesome. And and again, you know, Lando again at the end, you know, the crowd is showing you know their relief and their they're sort of hesitant to be happy about it. But Death Walkers just died, and Lando was kind of like, "Okay, all's well that ends well." Uh, Lando in this episode is not afraid to just. Say directly what he thinks.
0: Yeah. Okay, check-in number two, Ivanova. She doesn't have much to do, but I like the way that in the beginning we're in stiff, overly formal, overly wordy um, Susan mode. And then we check in at the end, and uh, she has gotten the Non-Aligned Worlds ship's to argue amongst each other who has the best right uh, to take her. She just expertly pits them against each other, snarls things up. Bureaucratic success. How'd she uh, do in this episode, y'all?
1: I generally was positive all the way around um, in the meeting of the command staff with um, Sinclair, Garibaldi, Franklin and her. you know, She is the one who is willing to lay it out on the table. We have to decide between justice and i forget what the other word she was she says
2: she says justice or immortality an right.
1: interesting choice i love that she says an interesting choice yeah she she just lays yep. it out very simply this is what we're dealing with she's also the one to flat out say we can't handle this we have to look to earth so it's more of the the lay it on the line type that she tends to be that that's part of her character that I thought shown through there. And certainly I also loved her her ability to think outside the box a bit and get those ships um captains all squabbling with each other to buy time.
0: Yeah, she still she looks gets... young in this episode, but accomplished. Mm-hmm.
2: She does get another nice Ivanova style quip where she's talking about, you know, the, the, the guns of Babylon Five. She says, you know, you'll find their power quite impressive. For a few seconds, mm-hmm. which is that's sort of the, the curt sort of uh, quote quip type thing that we get from her from time to time that I, I really enjoy.
1: And all the Drazi can do is hiss back at her. I thought that was fun, too. <laughs> yeah, it seemed like just a, you know, really, it it seemed like it was a very alien kind of response, you know, something typical of the Drazi, but it perfectly expressed his frustration.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. Okay, uh, check-in number three, our Doctor Who crossover check-in, and I was surprised to see that we had one, Shannon.
1: Uh, Just a note that um, Sarah Douglas, the actress who played Death Walker, has um, in the last few years done a number of voices for uh, the Doctor Who video games. So she's been popping up there.
2: There. I've got one more that's not actually a crossover, but just sort of a reference. Uh, as soon as, you know, Death Walker says, uh, somebody says anti-agapic for the first time, and, mm-hmm. and I could kind of like, Steven's head tilted. And as soon as they explain that it's an anti-aging thing, he just leans over to me and goes, Spectrox. So we've got another Doctor Who thing. That's from uh, Caves of Androzani, if anybody's curious. I can't
0: imagine Stephen huh. would have made a Caves of Androzani reference there.
2: Yeah, I know. and I mean. that- <laughs> you know.
0: That leads us to our final check in, the Steven check in. What did he think of this one, Erica? <laughs>
2: he he enjoyed it. He he made a couple of comments throughout it that actually made me laugh and, and one was in the opening credits where he said that uh after they they said two million, five thousand tons of spinning metal. He's like they gotta change that to three million. It's just too specific and clunky. <laughs> Which <laughs> that just kind of made me laugh. Um but I, I think he I think he enjoyed this one overall. And um yeah, I'm just interested to see
0: what what happens uh,
2: as we go on and get more of the ARC-based ones. I, th- he, I think he just liked it.
0: Yeah, so final reactions to the story before we go all spoilery?
2: A surprising yay, because like I said, I didn't remember it, but I really quite enjoyed it after seeing it.
0: And Shannon?
1: A very meaty episode, whether it's uh, part of the ARC or not. Uh, just, you know, it chews a huge amount of philosophical meat.
0: I give this a largely unqualified yay as well, and it's it's not so much a hesitation as an oddness that this is one where the main characters really don't accomplish a lot. Things happen to them and around them, and they try to deal with it, and in the end, it's, it's the Vorlons that take care of the issue. But that's one of the cool things about Babylon 5, in my opinion, that uh, sometimes the problems that come up cannot be neatly solved. So I think that that works for this show. Mm -hmm. So uh, we are about to go into the jump gate and talk about moments of significance in the larger series. And we're going to assume that everybody who is with us has either seen all of Babylon 5 before or doesn't care and is with us for the ride anyway. But we will, of course, have comment threads up for our next episode, Believer's. Um, at b5audioguide.com you can talk to us at b5audioguide on twitter or on tumblr as well and next time things are going to be really interesting for us because erica ensign gets to turn the tables (laughs) on one of her friends erica would you please explain
2: Yes, we are once again going to have a special guest next week. And this particular special guest is named Jason Snell. And he, as some of you already know, is the host of a lovely podcast called The Incomparable, which I guest on from time to time. And he is the moderator of that podcast. So yeah. I get to tell him when to talk now. Ha
0: ha. ha. <laughs> I am looking forward to this. I am rubbing my hands together with sadistic glee, even though I'm not actually going to be the one with the power.
2: Ooh, I'm tenting my fingers.
0: So. <laughs> <laughs> we got the same
2: kind of thing going on.
0: All right. So that is Believers, that is going to have guest panelist Jason Snell of the Incomparable. And if you wish to remain untainted by spoilers, uh, this is your time to check out. But we love having you with us. Um, special request, if you are one of those people who is watching for the first time, or if you'd like to help along people who are watching for the first time, our spoiler-free threads are on b 5 audioguidecom are a little more sparse than our spoiler zones so please feel free to visit the Zocalo and uh talk about the episode itself and uh, give some love to our fans who are watching Babylon 5 for the first time thanks for being with us and look out the vortex is open Back and this is probably not going to be a very long spoiler section because, as we said in the beginning, this ain't not a very arc-heavy episode at all, is there? Is there? Mm. That's not grammatical. <laughs> not so
2: much. Is it? There's, there's one thing I actually wanted to ask you, knowing more about what the original plan from the store for the story was. As compared to how it turned out, which I am clueless about. So when I watched through this, the entire thing, and had sort of seen the end before I saw the beginning, the whole plot... With Kosh and Talia, mm-hmm. I assumed I assumed that uh, Abbott was recording her feelings and stuff. I I guess maybe I extrapolated a little bit and threw some headcanon into there where he was really copying her entire personality so that she could maybe be saved at some point later after her personality was was wiped by the implanted personality from Cycor. What was the original hmm. intent of that, and where did where did I get it wrong?
1: I I think, partly, I think this was meant to, originally, if Andrea Thompson had been able to stay for the whole five years, um, the Lita Alexander arc, I think, would have been hers. So I think this was meant to be the introduction of Kosh starting to feel Talia out, start figuring out how they are going to insert her into this plan that they have to uh, combat the shadows uh, with um, enhanced telepaths. And I think this... I think this is what that that this, this story was originally meant to be was the the start of um, what would eventually have been uh, Talia being altered by the Vorlons and uh, turned into the super telepath that we later got without Al- lead Alexander.
0: Well, that- I don't know that she would have been turned into the super telepath because I think Jason Ironheart already turned that key. So True. maybe True. so maybe uh, this would have been more a way for Kosh to control her in case, uh, to, to sort of, as, she, as her powers would continue to develop, Kosh would be aware of this and think, you know, we're going to need her on our side, so let's put some stuff, let, let, let's, let's, let's put in some safeguards and let's uh, have something in line. Because, you know, later on, um, especially when after Kosh is killed and new Kosh comes on, um, Talia, re- I mean, Lita is really under the Vorlon's thumb. They're mm-hmm. totally controlling her, mm-hmm. uh, so I could see this sort of being used as a uh, as leverage against Talia. Um, if you freeze frame this sucker uh, when she's having her initial uh, flashes and reactions to um, to Abbott, one of the freeze frames that you get is this sort of computerized, this sort of computerized mm-hmm. image, and there's actually a brief like a smiley face. In, right. the, in the thing And you can read that two ways You can read that as a hint that um, Abbott's got a computer in his brain Or you could be Looking at this as the implanted uh, Personality That Talia's carrying yeah, which, I, which I think was definitely there All along And mm-hmm. JMS just sort of um, pulled, that, pulled that trigger a little early When um, Thompson decided to leave hmm.
2: yeah.
0: So but I'll throw that out there
2: yeah, it's, it's, it's just interesting that not knowing any of that, I kind of, like I said, maybe extrapolated a little bit mm-hmm. and just made up my own backstory because for me, this episode with what I thought it was trying to do really works very well within the arc of the show. It just, to me, I thought it was a a rare plot thread that was left dangling. She had mm-hmm. this fake personality that, that came up and took over. and And then we do get the Bester line talking about how she was dissected, which, mm-hmm. you know, you never know whether to believe or not. I didn't want to because that's Terrible right. and awful and gross. So I just thought that, you know, maybe Kosh somewhere, the Vorlons at that point, had a recording of her personality and could maybe uh, reinstate that at some point in the future. So, you know, the maybe fan f- their fanfic fan f- the fan yep. f- has been written. <laughs> Thank you. I'm sure yes. it has. I'm sure it has.
0: <laughs> um, and it's not that we do get a call back to this episode when Talia leaves because Garibaldi remembers the conversation in, in flashback that they had had. Um, and says that he needs to check on something with Ambassador Kosh. We never find that never goes anywhere, but it's another one of those moments where JMS sort of holds up a signpost and says, really? Remember this? Uh, we, 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 we have, we make plans. We lay plans. Sometimes those plans, those plans change, but we make plans. Yeah. Hmm.
1: Speaking of plans, um, I don't know if you meant to mention this earlier, b- before the spoiler horn, but um,
0: spoiler horn is trademarked the incomparable. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, you had mentioned in our notes uh, whether or not the scenes between Talia and Abbott and Kosh would have worked better. The, apparently the role was originally written for Gilbert Gottfried.
0: Thank God that didn't happen.
1: (laughs) You know,
2: I actually quite like Gilbert Gottfried, but I am still happy that did not happen because that would have been a bridge too far.
0: (laughs) Yeah. The only other thought that I have in terms of the big arc is the Vorlons' big cosmic daddies. And in about four years, Captain John Sheridan will tell them to get the hell out of our galaxy. Mm-hmm. Will we be ready for immortality at that point, or uh, do, we, do we just decide that we don't need the Vorlons to tell us that we're not ready for immortality?
1: Well, it, evolution takes another million years or so, if I remember correctly.
0: This is true. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think it's I think it's definitely the latter.
2: I don't think I don't think they show any signs of being ready for immortality by the end of season 5 at all. So, no. I do think it's just they're ready to kind of grow up on their own. Yeah.
0: But this is the this is the first real hint, you know, we've intimated that the Vorlons are old and powerful and all that stuff. But this, this is the and, first and, time and, they and, show it. And, and Kosh mm-hmm. has been unwilling to participate in most of the B5 advisory councils. And now we get the hint that that may be because they think that this is all beneath them. You know, mm-hmm. that, that they're the gods of this universe and the, other, the and the shadows. Uh, we We assume that they think of the shadows as the devils of this universe. But, you know, this is their universe. We're just bopping around in it. And I think this is the episode that Really, first indicates that to us as a viewer.
2: Mm-hmm. It's their first sort of display of of power. You you get whispers sort of throughout the other episodes talking about oh the Vorlons have biological technology ships and and that sort of thing. But this is the first time they actually use anything. The one line that kind of confused me about them was uh, vorlons are leery of telepaths which kind of made me cock my head because later on we find out that Vorlons sort of engineered the telepaths knowing that the shadows would be fought using them am i
1: remembering something wrong or somebody help me out here the lines there and i think i think it i think we get some stuff in the gathering too that if the vorlon government had been in a position to protest the idea of lita scanning kosh that that they might have stepped in and said, hey, don't do that. But it's but nothing firm okay. yet. All right. Well, that that makes sense to me then, because I can totally understand
2: a Vorlon not wanting a telepath to get into a Vorlon's head. So mm-hmm. I suppose that instance in the gathering may have just sort of carried over to here. The, the Vorlon government was PO'd about that having happened. So right. I can't even remember who delivered that line about the Vorlons being leery of telepaths. But but whoever that was thinking that, that they're leery of them simply because the government, the Vorlon government, was so upset at that time. Because I, I really don't feel like overall the Vorlons are leery of anybody.
0: <laughs> right. What we have is the Vorlons being utterly manipulative and utterly controlling, both on the cosmic stage with the killing Death Walker and on the personal stage when um, really manipulating and abusing. To, not to put too fine a point on it, Talia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so the, yeah, the Vorlons take care of a really bad guy, and yet we don't feel all that great about it. We do, and we don't. Mm-hmm. They're problematic. They are. They are. They have just become problematic, not just mysterious. Yep. Agreed. And that is the the first signpost there towards the end when we discover that the Vorlons are pretty much just as big a problem as the shadows. We may have sympathies towards their role in in championing order instead of chaos. But yeah, these, these are, these are not entirely good, uh, cosmic gods.
2: Steven was right. They are dicks.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And on that bombshell, I think it's time for us to, uh, take our leave unless there are any final thoughts.
2: No, I just want to go have a Jovian sunspot right about now.
0: (laughs) I didn't like Abba, I'm sorry. So, (laughs) oh goodness. But I do like Babylon 5 and I do like our next episode, Believers, which is a difficult one. And this is one that Mm -hmm. uh, my son and I actually skipped on our Mm. rewatch. So it's been a very long time since I've seen this one. My son can be sensitive, and you.
1: I'm not looking forward to rewatching this one. It's a. I'm, it. I'm a little itchy too.
0: Yeah, which is which. So of course, Jason Snell is like, "Hey, sign me up. I like Believers." <laughs> okay, here we go. So David Gerald's Believers is coming up next time on the Audio Guide to Babylon Five, which you can find, of course, at b5audioguide.com on Twitter and Tumblr at b5audioguide as well, and. Until next time, this is Chip and Durham.
1: Erica in Edmonton. And Shannon in Durham.
0: Thanks a lot. We'll see you in two weeks.